Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Success Harbor Podcast with George Mazaros, where it's all about making success happen for you. Hi, everyone. This is George Mazaros with Success Harbor, and I have Brant Weaver with me. Brant has started and built a 14-person web design business that he later sold. Then he went on to start YouGurus, a company that helps web professionals get more clients, better projects, and higher pay. In the following interview, we will talk about strategically building service businesses. Welcome. Glad to be here, George. Thanks for having me on Success Harbor. Thanks for being here, uh, Brent. Uh, let's talk about the beginning. Uh, how did you get started in the web design business, and what year was it? Uh, so my, my business partner started our, our web design company really in 1999, um, right before 2000, right? So we were uh, about to graduate high school. So we were actually in high school at the time. Um, and I can go a little bit further back than that. I started building websites maybe three years prior to that as kind of a hobby. And I really wanted to figure out how to make money doing it because I, I had a passion for it. And I figured, hey, if I, if I want to keep doing this thing, like if I want to actually you know, be able to build more sites and learn more about this type of stuff, I need to figure out how to earn some revenue Otherwise, it'll just kind of be a hobby that might fade away, and I won't be able to really get to do some of the things I'd like to do with it. So uh, my business partner and I kind of uh, had some things in common, and you know, again, this is back in high school, so like I, I want to think that maybe we were, we were thinking far ahead, but we really weren't. We just kind of wanted to put a little extra money in our pockets so we could have fun on the weekends or whatever, and uh, and we didn't want to go get jobs like our friends and make eight bucks an hour. So we decided to take these few skills that we had, find some people that would hire us to do that stuff. And, uh, and then the rest is kind of history. So how did you get uh, your first clients? I mean, you know, it's, it, sometimes it's hard to convince as a teenager, a business owner that, you know, hire me uh, to build your website, even though, you know, back then there weren't as many people building websites as, as now. And in, in we we were a little lucky in that sense that there's not a whole – you're absolutely right. There's not a whole lot of jobs that you can get in that capacity from, you know, adults hiring like 17-year-old kids. But because it had to do with technology and, uh, you know, kids often are fast followers and they learn about things early and they, they figure them out, whereas some adults might be kind of set in their ways, not really sure how to capitalize on something like that. So we were able to um, – you know, take advantage of that. Our first customers came from referrals from friends and family. Basically, you know, our parents and some other people knew that we were trying to build a business. They knew that we wanted to be able to uh, do this kind of thing and make a little extra money on the side. So they gave us, you know, some introductions. They knew some people. These are low-risk projects. I think one of our first projects was for a candy store out of Michigan which we didn't even live in Michigan. We lived in Texas. But my business partner, uh, his dad, would go on these hunting trips every year to Michigan, and they would go to the same candy store every year. And this candy store had uh, a, an, uh, an order form that they wanted to put on the Internet because they had been faxing it to all their customers. A customer would call up on the phone, ask them for their, you know, their new inventory of chocolate candies, and then they would fax them this order form. You know, they were faxing maybe 15, 20 times a day. They were faxing the same order form. And so we took that form and we put it on the Internet for 500 bucks, and that was our first client. Okay. 
Um, what about you know relationships early on? Because you know I think that not just for web designers, but any kind of service business relationships or any kind of business relationships are really key. Did you see the importance of that early on, or did you realize that it was key, or or back then it was more like okay, this is a web project, we need to complete it and move on to the next one. Uh, I mean, relationships absolutely played a big part. I don't know if we consciously woke up in the morning and said, we need to foster great relationships. But at the same time, I think we did a lot of things right that allowed us to foster relationships. You know, we, uh, we took our work very seriously. Uh, we probably, you know, over-delivered and under-promised on multiple occasions because, you know, we we were so serious about making sure we could deliver what we told a client we were going to deliver. And so we really took care of those initial small customers. And, and some of our clients, I mean, we had clients that were customers of ours from 2001 all the way until 2012. And, you know, some of those people that signed on and started working with us when we didn't know anything about business. We knew a little bit about the internet, but not compared to what we did later on. But they, you know, became clients of ours. And as they grew, we continued to foster that relationship and uh, continued to work with them. And, and obviously, the internet changed drastically from, let's say, 2001 to 2012. So those were clients that we continued to come back to them, help them to take advantage of new things that were happening on the web, help them use the internet to kind of continue to grow their business. So relationships, I think, just kind of was how – it was a key part of just how we operated, but I don't think we ever sat in a conference room and said, we need to foster the relationships we have better. I think it was always just this uh, under-promise, over-deliver mentality and you know, taking care of the people that um, paid us money and, and taking that very seriously. So let's talk about how your business grew over the years. Was it more of an organic growth? I mean, I know a lot of – Service providers, attorneys, and accountants, and they don't really do anything. You know, if they get a new client, you get a new client. If they don't, just you know, just work with the existing client they have. But they don't really proactively go out and go after clients. Uh, with your web development business, were you organically growing, or was there an actual strategy there? So for the first while, I mean, probably from 2001, or really from 1999. Probably all the way till 2007, uh, 2008, there was very little strategy. Um, there was very little intentional stuff. I mean, obviously, we were doing things like we were going to events or we were trying to figure out how to run our business. We were, you know, trying okay. things. Uh, I mean, you know, like local business events, things like that. I mean, we, you know, we, mm -hmm. we moved. Uh, originally, we were working uh, from uh, – Dallas, Texas, and uh, my business partner was going to UT Austin. I was going to CU Boulder. So, in you know, we were both from Plano, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. So we'd go back to that area every summer, and we'd kind of partner up again and work. And it wasn't until 2005 that my business partner moved out to Boulder, and then we worked there for maybe eight months and decided that we wanted to be in a bigger city. So we moved to Denver, and so we would we would go to like networking events. Uh, you know, Chamber of Commerce events. We kind of just look for anything that we could find to like go out because, and it's kind of funny. We just did what you, we thought you were supposed to do in business, which is go talk. Did it to work people. for you? Uh, mixed results. You know, mixed results for sure. Like, it, you know, I would say 
how many of our clients came from doing that? It's probably very few. And, and, and because of that, we eventually figured out that we had to be more strategic. So around 2007, 2008, we kind of hit this, uh, we kind of hit rock bottom in 2007. Like business was not working for us. It, we weren't growing. We were behind on our rent. We were late on payroll. Uh, we owed every vendor we knew in our book a bunch of money. And, you know, we kind of hit this moment where it was like we had to do something different. And it was at that time that we started to build a network of mentors and advisors and, we started to learn that you had to be more strategic if you wanted to consistently grow your business. So at that point, we got strategic. And so uh, uh, let me just interrupt. How do you, who did you reach out to to find mentors? Because it's so it's such a key point in my opinion. Um, so yeah. So we had a, a really good client that uh, her husband ran a large software company. And we had taken care of them really well. We had done a really amazing job on their project. And, you know, at one point in time, her husband had said to us, hey, you know, if you guys ever need help, like, give us a call, right? Like, we'll, we'll, I'm happy to give you advice, right? And so we finally kind of made that phone call. And I said, hey, I need some help. And we had lunch. And, and then that, you know, kind of got the ball rolling. You know, it, mm-hmm. it started giving us some ideas around how we should structure our business, the types of things that we should, you know, do in terms of what kind of uh, mastermind groups we should join or how do we go out and find other types of blueprints, other people that are doing what we're doing so we can learn from them versus learning by trial and error. And, and mm-hmm. everything up until that point had really been trial and error. Like we were just doing what we thought we should do and we didn't talk to any, any outside advisors. We didn't talk to anybody outside of our immediate, uh, you know, partnership and things like that. So at that point, you know, I'd say 2007, 2008, major turning point for us, um, started to learn from others, heavily use mentors, you know, any issue that we had, we took that to people that we trusted. And, um, and part of that was understanding what it meant to develop a strategy for our business. So what was the first big change that you remember based on now thinking about your business strategically as opposed to proactively or just, you know, we're just busy and working on projects. What was the big, big first big change that you guys made? Uh, we split our roles and responsibilities inside the business. So up until uh, 2007, uh, I did uh, I did uh, build work, basically design development. So did my business partner. Uh, we both kind of shared support. We both would go on sales meetings together. Um, we would both kind of manage projects together. We kind of didn't really have any clear definition of who did what. We just kind of both pitched in, and, and we thought that was uh, we thought that was good, right? We thought that both of us showing up for a sales meeting showed some type of value to the customer. And um, and what we basically did was uh, we split the business, you know, uh, conceptually. And I started focusing all of my attention on sales and marketing. And my business started. My business partner focused all of his attention on operations and projects, and basically fulfilling the work that we were selling. Okay. And and that clear 
split, which at the time we probably didn't even make it that we didn't even make it clear enough. We still were keeping each other's hands and a little bit of the other the other's pies, but we did better than we had ever done before. We kind of said, look, anytime there's a new sale or a new lead, Brent will take that. And then once that project becomes a real project, then I will hand that to Steve and he'll focus on delivering it. So the team started kind of reporting, the, the production team, the designers, developers started reporting to Steve and I started basically working on more of my outbound strategies and I spent most of my time on the phone with opportunities or attending events or networking and, and that kind of thing. So when we, when we made that split, I would say that year our revenue doubled and the following year our revenue doubled. So you basically became a lot more productive, right? I mean, that's, that's one, of, one of the things, right? Because like you said, you didn't have... Sometimes I think a lot of businesses, especially small businesses, they feel like if they show in greater numbers, that's, that's more impressive. Uh, but like you said, it was kind of a wasting 50% of your efforts as well. Well, not only that, but nobody was accountable for it. So like mm-hmm. we were we were both showing up for meetings and like we'd be driving back from the meeting and we'd say like oh well who's going to write the proposal and you know sometimes it would be Steve and sometimes it would be me and oh who's going to deliver this who's emailing the proposal oh well I'll email it to this client and then maybe the next client Steve would email it and then who does the follow up right like all of that stuff became shared responsibility and and when when two people share a responsibility nobody is accountable for it right it's Ultimately, you have to identify one person to say you're responsible for this thing in the business, and that person has to own that thing. Otherwise, you know, the ball gets dropped or nobody is ultimately accountable. Was it also kind of the beginning of creating systems around sales and, and, and everything else? Well, right. So once, you, once you're accountable for something, once I was responsible for sales, then – I started to think about how can I make this better? How can I improve what we're doing? So I went out and I hired a sales coach slash consultant. I hired a marketing coach slash consultant. Um, I started to think about sales as part of our business as a unit, and I wanted to be like, I want to make our sales process better. I want us to close more deals, higher prices. I want us to get more customers that are better fits for our business, and I want to figure out ways to scale the demand side of the equation. And at the same time, my business partner was, you know, what kept him up at night was the project process and how to build a team that could build projects kind of on a – a factory belt, right? Like a factory line. Like he was thinking about how do we move a a contract from contract signature deposit all the way through to a happy customer coming out the other end. And that's kind of what kept him up at night. And, and eventually we figured out that there was some other roles, key key departments in our business as well. Like we had to have an admin person there to kind of run the administration between, you know, all the different departments and make sure that, you know, invoices were getting sent and bills were getting paid and packages were getting delivered. And, and then within operations, we even d- realized that there was a difference between new projects and supporting old projects. And, and all of this focus came out of just that basic understanding of dividing, dividing those responsibilities up between people and, and making somebody ultimately accountable for that function in the business. Okay. Uh, at that point, uh, what were the most effective marketing channels for your business? A few things. Um, we had a couple of channel partners. 
um, that worked really well for us. Uh, one of those was a really well-known restaurateur here in Denver that we built a, a really tight relationship with. And he actually became um, probably my, my closest mentor that I'll probably ever have in my entire life. And um, I started doing a lot of charity and nonprofit philanthropy work with this restaurateur. And that relationship, you know, he had been in Denver running multiple restaurants for 25 years. And so he had a network of people like he was so well known in Denver that a large, you know, when we, when we solidified that relationship with him and, the, and my friendship was formed with him, uh, you know, he started referring us not only lots of restaurant customers, but, you know, very influential business and nonprofit organizations that he was well connected to, you know, he started making those introductions and that really helped kind of boost our business. Uh, the other probably very uh, uh, cornerstone or, or you know, uh, important moment for us was we built a lot of our websites on a specific technology uh, called Business Catalyst. And we made a decision as a company that in, in, in up until this point, we had built websites on a variety of different technologies. Uh, and I won't go into that, but, you know, we had like six or seven different major technologies that we supported as a company. And we basically realized that that was holding us back because we were, we were spreading ourselves too thin from a, a technology and mind share and uh, knowledge base standpoint. Like we all didn't speak the same language. So we made a decision to focus on one type of technology solution as kind of our, our uh, keystone offering. And that technology was made by Adobe or at the time we started selling it, it was made by an independent startup out of Australia, but then Adobe acquired that company. And my mentor, uh, one of my mentors, uh, the original guy from the software company, you know, I talked to him about it and he said, you know, you should really forge a relationship with Adobe because they could be a huge channel for you guys to get customers that use this technology all over the world. So we had this really great channel partner in Denver, our restaurateur, and then I started to forge a relationship with Adobe and make that a strategic initiative. And I attended their conferences. I met all of their engineers, their marketing people, their product people. I started to blog about their technology, help them out, provide value to their community. And then they started sending us a lot of customers. They started to invite me out to speak at their annual conference. And, uh, and then we started actually selling products to that community as well. And that was kind of part of our evolution from a service business to a product business. So those key relationships and, uh, and, and strategies to forge, you know, a relationship with a key champion within a market, but then also to forge a relationship with one of our key suppliers. Um, those two events, those two ideas, I think, were, were critical to where we've gotten to today. Great. Um, you built your company to 14 employees. Today, a lot of companies have virtual teams. Uh, was your company uh, full-time employees, or was it a virtual team? Uh, what was the what was the makeup of it? Mostly full-time. So, uh, based in our office in Denver, some so my, some part-time, some virtual. So, my question is, and I just want to get your take on this because a lot of companies are now, especially service companies, are are building virtual teams, and I'm asking this because. 
a lot of service businesses like web design businesses are cyclical. You know, you might not have much going on today, but two weeks from now you could have five or ten new projects. So it's hard to keep a team paid when the business is kind of cyclical. So I in in you gurus today is also primarily a uh, a full-time employee company based in a physical office. So and I and I and a lot of our customers do run virtual businesses. So I'm exposed to many of these different types of business models. And uh you know, I have close advisors and uh and even one of my investors runs a very successful kind of virtual oriented business, very low overhead, high margins, uh very successful business. My take has been always to build uh, an asset that um, you know becomes bigger than myself, and and I guess there's there's different paths you can take to that. In some ways, we've taken a very traditional approach in which that we have the office and the team members and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we see a 10-year vision of a very robust and large company, uh, and that's not for everybody. And, and I'm not saying you can't grow a virtual team to that size. I've definitely seen it. Um, I just I kind of stick to my knitting to some degree. I, I know how to build a team. I know how to lead in this style, and it works well for me. We've been able to, uh, you know, not only build our web agency to a, a profitable business that ended up getting acquired, but now uh, YouGurus, which is just about November first, will be our second year in business, and uh, and we've been able to go from you know zero dollars in revenue up to almost a million dollars in revenue in a very short period of time. And and I've I've been able to do that with a team that I meet face to face with on a regular basis, um, and and we have kind of a culture around that kind of collaboration. Not to say there's anything wrong with virtual businesses. I just kind of know how to build systems and processes and and teamwork around a specific style. Um, that being said, we have flex time. So outside of our key meetings, uh, team members can kind of work from when at wherever and and whenever they want. So we have cameras in pretty much every single meeting room. We have TVs. Uh, a lot of times people do work remote. They work from home. We've got people with little kids and schedules that just change up all over the place. So we've set up an environment where, you know, there's cameras on whiteboards and there's cameras in rooms and, and you can be virtual, but we also like to have that physical hub so people can, you know, work together when needed, see each other face to face. Sounds good. Uh, let's talk about commoditization because, you know, web design has become highly commoditized. You know, in the 90s, you could charge 50 grand for a website. And now, you know, I think you're lucky if you charge 10% of that for, for the average website out there. But it's it's not only true for web designers. I think even, you know, attorneys and a lot of other services have commoditized over the years. How can web designers fight that, um, in your opinion? Well, I guess distance themselves from the the commodities, right? I mean, if 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 web design as a practice is being commoditized, then don't call yourself a web designer. I mean, you know, web web sites, you know, to to take a step back, are a medium, right? It's 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 the same thing as you know a flyer or um, a billboard or a TV, you know, TV. These are just mediums, right? So how this medium has opened people up to the entire world as a market, though, is 
is very effective, right? Websites can immediately reach everybody in the world or, or you know, there's estimates that two and a half billion people are connected to the internet, right? So as a medium, web can be much more effective than paper and all that kind of stuff. What people use the web for primarily is to get more customers and to get their message, their products, their services in front of more people faster. So if, as a web designer, you step back from your day-to-day -day HTML, CSS, JavaScript, frameworks, WordPress, etc., if you step back from that stuff and just ask yourself a simple question of, why is somebody hiring me? Are they hiring me to deliver HTML, CSS, uh, design, right? Or are they hiring me for some other purpose? And it's at that moment that you have an opportunity to elevate your position in the market from a web designer to somebody that helps their client achieve some other net benefit, some other finished story benefit, right? So if you can make that transition from I build websites to you know, and I'm not sure what your value prop is, but maybe it's I help people get more customers or I help people, um, you know, uh, deliver their products faster or whatever that thing is that the customer is ultimately trying to do with the Internet. If you can elevate yourself to that kind of a value proposition, uh, it will never go out of style. You know, no matter how commoditized the web space becomes, if you can prove to your customers that you can deliver a positive ROI on the work that you do, then the limit of your prices is simply a factor of how much ROI you're providing. Let's let's talk about recurring revenue because personally, I think that that's where really the value is in a business. And and I think it's even if if you don't want to sell a business, I think recurring revenue is just it's really the way to go. How do you build recurring revenue business when so many small businesses are so price sensitive since the the recession? I mean, it's almost like you know it's a very very different common economy today than what it was before the recession. What were you doing in your business to sell your customers on recurring service? Because this is almost a mind shift for you as a service provider and a mind shift for for your customer at the same time. So, um, and I've got a good story, I guess, around recurring revenue. Because in in 2007, when we were at our 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 lowest point in terms of we were underwater, we were in the red, and we were, you know, we had been self-funding our business, and we kind of ran out of money, and our credit cards were maxed out, and uh, we couldn't live on what we were uh, earning at that point. It kind of we hit this turning point. And my business partner gave uh, – he gave me a presentation, and it was entitled Obtaining Peace of Mind. And the whole idea of this presentation was that we needed to build recurring revenue streams, predictable revenue is probably a better way to put it. Um, because, you know, recurring revenue can come in a lot of different forms. And also, individual projects uh, can be – profitable and you can count on them if they're predictable. If they if you build them in a way or build a system to generate lots and lots of individual projects, I mean that can be as valuable as as a recurring revenue stream. So he gave me this presentation and at the time three uh, percent of our overall revenue was recurring or predictable revenue. And ninety seven percent of our revenue was individual project fees. Now this was a problem. So not only were we uh, at an impasse with being in the red and losing money, but we also 
had no recurring revenue. We had no peace of mind. We couldn't really sleep at night because we had no idea how much money was going to come in next month or the month after that. So we basically you know, had an idea session. We came up with maybe three or four or five uh, different ideas for how we could drive recurring revenue, that, that number up. And at the time, we created a goal to make – and this was very, uh, very aggressive, which is a habit we've made over the years, is, is making these ridiculous goals. And our goal was by the end of that year, 50% of our revenue was going to be recurring. And so we did things like this. We, we, we had some hosting revenue at the time. And what we did was we basically – shifted our business model to where if you were going to be a customer of ours, instead of giving somebody the choice to host with us or host elsewhere, we basically made it a requirement. It was how we worked. If you, Because what happened was at the time, we had clients that were hosting their websites on all sorts of different systems, all sorts of different infrastructure, and that actually caused a lot of problems in our ability to support our customers. So not only was it beneficial for us from a business model standpoint, but the real problem we were solving was getting all of our customers on a homogeneous platform so that when they had issues and they called us at 2 in the morning because something happened to their website, there was no question about who their provider was, what the system was, et cetera. So we got all of our clients on the same platform. On top of that, we offered them um, some support maintenance packages, essentially insurance plans, right? So if you wanted us to uh, proactively make sure that your website was uh, not only online, but we were actually looking at the ongoing performance of it, and we were on call for you in case anything ever popped up, you know, you could call our cell phones and all that kind of stuff, and we were going to be immediately responding. So we went from just hosting to now we have some hosting and some service and support. Ultimately, we started to offer as we started to realize you know the what we were building was really this commodity and we realized that we wanted to do something more meaningful i.e. help our clients grow their businesses then we started to get our fingers into some ongoing marketing contracts uh, and and that's really where we started going from low recurring revenue per customer like 100 200 300 dollars a month to 500,000 2000 3000 dollars a month in terms of ongoing recurring revenue and then on top of that we built a system and a process for ongoing service and support. So when our customers did call us, we had a profitable business model in place in order to service them and help them out. Instead of providing that service and help for free or providing a crappy service, we actually built a really cool uh, process to help our customers out, and that even became a very profitable ongoing uh, revenue stream for us. And so we, we never got to the 50% mark, uh, because our gross revenue grew so fast and we were able to, because I was focusing on sales, we were able to bring on so many more projects that even though our rev, basically what we did was we were able to chase our, that percentage and we never got to 50%, but we did get to about 25% of our revenue was predictable recurring revenue. And, um, and, and that at the same time, our overall revenue had grown by a factor of five X. So we were able to keep pace and actually increase the overall share of recurring revenue during that period of time to something that, that did help, right? I mean, that was a huge weight off of our shoulders because a lot of our overhead and our cost was covered by that predictable recurring revenue. So, I mean, it sounds to me that part of it was to productize a service business. Uh, you know, 
from my experience uh, of the businesses that I talk with and the businesses I've known, it's very, very difficult to scale a service business without um, productizing it somehow. So is, is that, what you, uh, that what you did in your business? Well, and, and I, I hear this a lot, productizing services. I hear that a lot. And I, and I think what people mean there is building defined processes and systems for a service, which I think for any service, you should have systems and processes in place. Uh, so when I hear productizing, I, I'm not sure I fully agree with that. I think what we had was we had systems and processes in place so that when somebody requested a service, we weren't inventing the delivery mechanism every single time. Uh, so when I, when I hear of product, product to me means that somebody buys something and they don't, you know, at that point, there's, there's no manual labor after that, right? Like I buy an iPhone and at that point, all of the product work is done and somebody just delivers me the iPhone. Uh, you know, whereas a service, you go get your haircut every time you walk in there, you know, it, they should have their service down to a very specific and controlled process so the experience is always the same and they can focus on the service, right? I pay them money and then they deliver the service through a, uh, a predefined process. So I think what people are trying to do when they hear the term productizing services is they try to create a, a menu of sorts and they try to create you know boundaries and boxes around services, which I think is a good idea. But what they fail to do at that point is focus on that process. Like what happens when somebody buys this and how do I automate that as much as I can to deliver a consistent experience over time? And when you, when you do that, when you have those processes in place, um, I don't know if I would call it productizing something, but you do you can scale service at that point because you have a consistent process. You can train people on that process. You can bring people in off the street that maybe – uh, have no idea how to deliver that service, and you have a very specific training uh, program, a, a specific end goal that you're trying to get them to, and it's not like every single project comes in and it's completely different. And you're yeah, I think that was kind of my point is that when it when it's a service business, you know, like web design or uh, consulting, you know, every project seems to be different, and it's hard to scale that because it's hard to hire for it, it's hard to manage those projects. Um, and that's that's what I meant by trying to productizing the business, so it's a little bit easier to scale and manage. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with that. I also think though that people in service businesses oftentimes run without a strategy in place, and they get customers. Basically, whoever knocks at their door potentially becomes a customer, and because they aren't focusing on either a specific market or a type of project, they also are foregoing that ability to create consistent processes for people that are coming in. You know, I mean, it's like it's like a barber shop who has a very specific process for cutting men's hair, and you know, some woman walks in and she has three foot long curly hair. And, you know, if it's a barbershop for men, you know, they, they might turn her away because they, they just don't have the skill set in the process to service that customer. But many service businesses don't turn that customer away. They try to figure it out. And what they end up with is they, they lose that ability to create those consistent processes, that consistent experience, because they're trying to be everything to everyone. And one of the things that we try to train our 
web pros with our products on, on YouGurus is to, uh, to be more specific around who you're trying to attract so that you attract more of the same types of customers, and then that opens up the opportunity to productize or process your service offering. Yeah, so uh, like one way to productize it is to focus on an, a, a vertical uh, because then you can go back to all these same type of businesses and say, here's what we did for this business, and this is what we can do for you. Yeah, so a vertical or a horizontal, like a customer segment. So predefine, you know, or not predefine, but define who you're trying to reach and look for common problems within that market so that you can come up with one solution or two solutions and offer it to that focused customer segment. So I try not to say, you know, I try not to get people too wrapped up in this idea of verticals because sometimes they get discouraged because they say, well, I don't want to just work with dentists for the next 25 years. And, and so I, I say to them, look, you don't have to necessarily pick dentists, but you do need to pick a focused customer segment so that you know where to go find clients. You can try to find patterns uh, to uh, service those customers. And, and as you see those patterns, that's where the idea of productizing comes out. So let's talk about lead generation. How how did it change from I mean when you started out in uh, 99 2000 it was a very different environment uh economically and also the technology changed and the web changed and people's view on the internet changed. How did it how did lead generation change between then and now? Well, there's a hell of a lot more people on the internet. I mean Look at the major – I mean, look at the companies that are coming out. Like the tech boom and bust that happened, the bubble that happened, I mean, there is more money in the Internet and in technology today than there ever has been on Earth. And there's an illusion that people think that the peak of technology and the Internet happened in, in the – you know, in 1999-2000. And the reality is is there was – hundreds of millions of people, low hundreds of millions, maybe 150, 200 million people on the internet at the tech boom, the, 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 the quote-unquote bubble bursting. Today, you have 2.4 billion people connected to some type of internet-enabled device. That is an order of magnitude larger. You have companies like Alibaba who have now set a record for you know largest IPO. You have this uh, uh, collision of you know uh, China and some of those eastern countries kind of merging or the opportunities are starting to mesh between them and some of these mega internet companies like Amazon and, and all that kind of stuff. So how has the climate changed, right? The climate today is that if you can figure out how to address somebody's pain or problem with a solution that really amazes them and wows them and actually delivers on the promise that you have, you have – instant access to billions of people. I mean, that, that's proven right now in Facebook advertising. I mean, people, I mean, Facebook's revenue has skyrocketed because they've been able to connect over a billion people into one platform. So if you have a product or a service that can, that can appeal to a large audience of people, I mean, you can literally today in a few hours run an ad to you know, hundreds of millions of people with a few clicks of a mouse. So this idea of scale and actually harnessing the internet for, I think, what it what people thought it was going to be back in 1999 and 2000, you know, that that future is now here and people are taking advantage of that. And so I think one of the key things that I've realized is that, you know, a lot of people said, oh, the web's going away and apps are going to overtake that. No, this is all increasing the mind share of internet, technology, 
devices within people, and they're all being able to, uh, I think, lift anybody that wants to take advantage of these platforms. You know, they're getting a huge lift in their business, in um, their ability to deliver value. So part of your growth strategy was to acquire books of business. How did you find these opportunities? Or buy, how do you find businesses to buy or, or buy their books of business? Well, so the first step in that is to have a profitable business yourself and be, be in a position to buy. Um, you know, if you don't have a profitable business, you don't have a cash positive business where you actually have additional revenue to make those types of investments, then it's, it's not really worth the strategy to, to go forth with, right? And if you don't have those systems and processes to acquire that company and then to uh, actually get more uh, revenue or leverage out of that client base, then it's, it's not really something worth to explore. So I would say the first thing you should be do- working on is is building your core, and then the opportunities to acquire other businesses, once you're in a position to do so, they will just appear. Uh, I mean, you can be more strategic than that, right? You can look at it as its own customer group, and you can go out there and find you know mergers and acquisition opportunities, and there are businesses that specialize that in that. But when we did it, it literally was like we, we – put ourselves in a position where we were successful and profitable and then people that we knew in that market, they basically started knocking on our door and they said, Hey, you know, we're getting out of this business. We'd like to, you know, would you, would you entertain uh, buying our customer base or buying our, our brand? And so we were in a position to do that. And that's kind of how that worked out for us. So I wish, I wish I could say that we, you know, sat back in a conference room and said, we're going to start doing an M and a strategy uh, but that really wasn't the reality. The reality was we put ourselves in a position of profitability, and that led to opportunities kind of opening their doors. And a, an important point for me was is uh, from what you said, and and I, I I think it's a really good point is that you shouldn't want to buy a business if you have no customers, and uh, just for that, because you know you already have, like you said, you have a model that is working, and you want to get clients to scale that working model, as opposed to, hey, we don't have any clients, let's buy a business so we get some clients. Well, you could, right? I mean, if that's your if that's your strategy to enter a market, but then you're not doing something right, unless you're like you're just starting out today. You don't have a business, and now I buy something that makes sense. But if you already have been in business, right, for a while, and you don't have clients, then you're not doing something right. You need to fix something before you reach out and get some other clients. I, and I totally agree with that, George. You know, I think if if you have an unprofitable business, I think acquiring another business might not fix that unprofitable problem. Uh, you know, I think if you you should probably fix your core first before you start exploring M&A strategies as a as a path to growth. Um, but that being said, if you do have a profitable business, I think mergers and acquisitions can be uh, a very fast growth strategy to be, to building a large company. I mean, look at uh, Solar City and some of the other major publicly traded solar companies now they have all uh, gone through an, an M&A strategy in order to IPO their companies or they uh, fast-tracked it with an IPO. So, you know, you get if, – if you are looking for a, a way to very quickly, you know, uh, buy them or build them, right, you can build your customer base slowly over time or you could simply buy them. And if buying them gets you more customers and even more scalable profits faster, then I'm absolutely a fan of that approach. So why did you decide to sell your web design business? Uh, 
we so we kind of we started uh, experimenting with some products, right? I mean, uh, truly productizing our services. We took information and knowledge about how we were running our business and we started packaging it up into video products and we sold that to people in our industry. And that as a business started to kind of slowly take off within our company. And one day we kind of woke up and we, we, we essentially had two different, very different businesses underneath us. You know, we had this service business where we helped people build websites and online business and online marketing, billing for hours, trading time for money. And then we had this other part of our business where it was a very different customer group. We were selling things, video products to web professionals. And, um, and within our team, we started to kind of clash in terms of priorities uh, are we were speaking two different languages in the business. Uh, really, the leadership, myself and my business partner, started to enjoy the product stuff, the online education, the professional training stuff. We started to enjoy that a lot more. And we just kind of made a decision. We said, look, we can either spend, you know, we can continue to try to ride these two horses, right? So if you think of that analogy, right, that picture in your head of two horses sprinting down a path, and as long as those two horses are headed in somewhat the same direction, you can maybe ride the two horses at the same time. But what we, what we started to experience was that one of those horses was starting to go off a certain direction, or we, we thought it was about to. And, you know, if you're riding two horses at the same time, and one of them decides to, to shoot off in another direction, you know, you, you might find yourself with a face full of mud. And so we started to feel that pressure that we really had two different businesses underneath one roof and we did some soul searching and some thinking about it. And we said, look, if, you know, I think the scalable opportunity is in this online education space. I think it'll take us a very, very long time to grow a $10 million business, uh, building one website at a time, building that service business up. And we had some friends that we knew that had gotten to that three and $4 million range, maybe even up to $6 million. Um, but we didn't really know a whole lot of service companies, maybe one or two that had made their way all the way up to the 10 or 15, $20 million, maybe $15 million range. Whereas in the product space, we had lots and lots of friends that were making those types of inroads. And so we said, look, we want to run with a scalable opportunity, something that we think could, if done right, could actually be a much more valuable asset, much more valuable multiple. And so we, uh, we made the decision to focus on that full time. Well, that makes sense. <clears throat> you mentioned that uh, this is now the second year of YouGurus and, and you have uh, about a million dollar in uh, revenue at this point? Uh, yeah, we'll do close to that in 20. 14. Okay. And so what what's what what is what is the reason for that? Uh what what are the really effective marketing channels or or is it the product or the, I mean what 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 do you credit that to? Um well, right. So so we know who our customer is. Um and we we spend a lot of time thinking about that and and building products and ser- products that will appeal to that customer group. Um what would I, I mean, I, in terms of crediting that, I mean, it's, you know, every quarter we have strategy planning meetings and offsites and we think about what are we doing for the next 90 days and, and we uh, work on those and get everybody in alignment. So our entire team understands what our objective is, what we're trying to accomplish. And then we spend that quarter heads down 
executing, executing, executing. And then at the end of that quarter, we come up for error and we spend uh, about a week doing planning for that next quarter. And so we're on this pulse where we set goals and everybody in our team is made aware of those. We're, we, we have a pretty high level of transparency in terms of what we're trying to accomplish for the business and, um, and how we're going to get there. And we make everybody on the team really aware of that. So, uh, you know, obviously I think that plays a big part. I mean, our, our team is the most important asset that we have as a company. And then the second, the second most important thing is our customers. Um, and so we, we spend a lot of time with our team and then we spend a lot of time with our customers and that combination I think has worked really well for us to find products that have great product market fit. And then, um, you know, we're working on scaling a couple of our products right now. So what are your, my last question is where do you see you gurus? Um, let's say, I mean, you know, I mean, five years is way too far, but let's say in the last 12 to 24 months, what are your goals with the business? Uh, so and I'm happy to talk about, you know, one year, three year, 10 year, uh, our, our, our purpose, we create communities for people seeking to make their lives better in the next year. Uh, we're really focused on our 10 K bootcamp product. Uh, this is a, the only online training program that teaches and challenges web professionals to raise their prices and sell their first $10,000 website project. And we do this through a 10 week uh, online coaching program. We have an amazing platform, an amazing mix of mentors that help us to execute this program. And we're currently in our second class. We did our first class in the spring. We're currently in our second program. And so right now we're spending a lot of, in the next 12 months, we are going to continue to refine and scale that product. Um, we, we've had a lot of success with it. Uh, out of our, our first class had 34 students and 30 of them graduated. Um, and so we're, we're hopefully going to get even better results uh, this time around. So we've had some amazing success with that product. We're looking to work on strategies to amplify that. And we're very focused on that product. And then we maybe will introduce one other product in the next 12 months. Uh, and then in terms of three years, taking that product and, and that framework, the bootcamp framework, and looking at other applications for it, either within our market or within other markets. Uh, and and that, that will probably be the 10-year scale uh, goal. So in 10 years, we'd like to see ourselves at $12 million in revenue. And so um, in order to get there, we know that we might have to scale outside of the web pro market. But for right now, we're, we're very focused on uh, the web professional. Now that makes sense because I think a lot of other service providers would be, you know, uh, would benefit from it because a lot of it applies to, you know, attorneys and accountants and consultants and so on and so forth. So it, it sounds like a really good, uh, good, good idea. How can people uh, connect with you and uh, find out more about some of your programs, uh, Brent? So if you're a web professional, I highly recommend you checking out ugurus.com. Uh, That's U as an umbrella and then G-U-R-U-S.com. Uh, if you're not a web pro or you just like what I've been talking about, I encourage you or invite you to connect with me on Twitter uh, at Brent Weaver is my tag. Or you can also go to my uh, personal blog, uh, brentweaver.co. So it's brentweaver.co. Uh, to connect with me. Well, thanks a lot uh, for coming on Success Harbor today, Brent, and uh, share your story. And uh, everybody out there, uh, check out you gurus. 
<clears throat> excuse me, that's U-G-U-R-U-S.com. And again, uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for listening and thanks for being here, Brent. George, it's been my pleasure, and uh, thank you guys for spending some time with us here at Success Harbor, and I, uh, I'd love to be back on sometime and love what you guys are doing. Yeah, I'd love to uh, hear you maybe a year from now, see where you gurus is, and uh, share your story. Thanks, thanks a lot, and uh, bye, everybody. <laughs>